Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Dada, with the latest WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and we are still about one week away from WWE Survivor Series. War Games! And we have an absolute ton to get to on today's show as we break down everything that happened across SmackDown and Raw this week. A very interesting SmackDown show on Friday, built far different than most WWE shows have been recently. Raw, in my opinion, kicking some ass on Monday night. But we will get to all of that and more coming up today on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. As we kick off this show, allow me to hit you with a few reminders. First, that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please, folks, stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King, for Vintage Chris Vanini, and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave some five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. We have been stuck at 415 reviews for quite some time on Apple. So please, folks, let's get up to that 450 range at some point, maybe before the end of the year. I know that is a significant ask. Let's change that. Let's get to 450 by the Royal Rumble. You can do it by heading over to Apple Podcast, finding our show over there, not just hitting the five-star button, but leaving a written review. Again, if you do that, we will read it live right here on the show. On Spotify, of course, you can also rate us five stars and you can leave comments on individual episodes. We do read those and I have seen some questions come in over there. We will start integrating those into the show as well. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. It is also where you can DM us and tweet us questions and comments that we will read on the show. The other option is emailing us, gettingoverpod at gmail.com. And lastly, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You will get bonus audio the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant reactions to Raw, NXT, Dynamite, and SmackDown every week, along with exclusive news and information. Again, you can get all of that, five a month, 50 for the entire year, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Chris, let me welcome you to the show. Thank you for being here, of course, for our latest WWE episode. This is a crazy time of year for both of us, not only the holiday season coming up, of course, but certainly with our college football lives uh, crescendoing next week. We have Rivalry Week, as they call it, the same day as Survivor Series War Games, and then, of course, Conference Championship Week coming after that. We get a little bit of a respite after that, for sure, uh, but wild times here. I know you're wired, I'm wired. I kind of see this podcast in many ways as a way to, like, take my mind off of work, even though this is still work to a degree. Uh, it, it allows me to kind of compartmentalize, get into the entertainment aspect that we don't necessarily get to enjoy as much as we do um, covering college football. It, it requires a different part of our brain, I would say, these days, uh, the way we cover football. So I'm excited to do the show today. You can tell I'm energetic and pumped up, and I hope you're the same way. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm 
it, it, as we get to the end of the football season, a lot of going on. I've been really busy with work, um, but it, it's nice to have the quick turnaround to Survivor Series because the energy has stayed up on the show. Mm -hmm. You know, there wasn't five to six weeks and it's a slow build. We jumped right into War Games, Survivor Series and stuff, and that has uh, made the shows uh, pretty good. And there's been a sense of urgency and that's good. I think that's fair to say for sure. My issue, and we talked about it last week, we're not going to harp on it this week, I promise. But it's like you bring in Roman Reigns and then he's just gone. Like not just is he gone, the entire bloodline was gone this Friday on SmackDown. And that really brings me to what I wanted to discuss before we get into the show. And of course, coming up for all of our long-term listeners and any first-time listeners, we will have the main event where we cover the biggest uh, moments and incidents in WWE this week, the good, the bad, and the ugly, where we break down everything else that happened across SmackDown and Raw. And then we'll wrap up the show with the last word. But before we get to that, I actually want to spend a moment discussing SmackDown as a whole from Friday night. And actually, I'll quickly say, I thought Raw was largely great on Monday. Solid, but not a notable crowd. Really strong, show-long storyline. Some lackluster matches. But regarding SmackDown, first, the somewhat uncontrollable. I thought the Columbus, Ohio crowd was awful and actively made the show worse as the two hours transpired. They were way too quiet. They did what chance, and they rarely got excited for what was happening in the ring. Now, that said... As a home viewer, I also noticed that the sound mixing for TV seemed like it was really poor, and I don't completely blame the fans because I've personally found SmackDown on Friday to be largely boring, even though there were a few notable developments and highlights on the show. But it was such an odd two hours. There were only four total storylines. NXT gives us four storylines in 20 minutes. Neither Roman Reigns nor Logan Paul nor Judgment Day, who, by the way, are the tag team champions, were on the show. The lone champion there, the only one, was Io Sky. She was embroiled in a storyline that had nothing to do with her title. Now, that said, the women got a ton of time, and that storyline was by far the highlight of the show for me. It's going to be part of our main event today. But outside of like a 30-second backstage segment, there was no bloodline. That's not inherently a bad thing because of overexposure. But that absence was felt. It almost came across like it was a taped episode, except it was live. You have AJ Styles, Karrion Cross, Unholy Union, Pretty Deadly, Brawling Brutes. It felt like we could have had some vignettes or backstage segments, something to break up the big four you know, storylines that were on that show. But we didn't really get any of that. It was just like 30 minutes on one thing, 30 minutes on something else. And that is how it transpired the entire episode. Maybe they were trying something new. I found it way boring to do it that way, especially juxtaposed directly with Raw on Monday night. Well, I mean, I, I, I saw some similarities. I don't think Raw had a ton of storylines either. It had many, many segments around the War Games storyline. So you're right. Maybe, maybe that was something they were trying. But you're right. The show, SmackDown, did lack the star power. That's what Raw didn't. That's what Raw for a while we've been saying. Where is Cody Rhodes? Well, Cody Rhodes was all over Raw. All over. So like yeah. that that that's where that's where uh, Raw felt like it's got all of its major players involved. And SmackDown was missing shoot like three or four of its top players. Yeah, and like LA Knight was involved in something that sure he was on the show, but it didn't really matter. So like your biggest star as of right now, your most over person was involved in like a 
tertiary storyline. Roman Reigns isn't there. AJ Styles is healthy. They're not using him. He's a big star. Bobby Lashley's on the show and he's a big star super over, but now he's a heel and he's also involved in something that again is like a, a second tier storyline on the program. So it, it's just one of those things where it, it just felt like a lacking show and it, it really bothered me. And then your other star, Kevin Owens, uh, he was on commentary for SmackDown. He replaced Corey Graves, who was celebrating the birth of his child with Carmella. Congratulations, obviously, to them. Now, WWE did a social media segment with KO asking Nick Aldis for the commentary chair, and he agreed. He said KO would be suspended, though, if he got physically involved while in that role. What's ironic is I remember, Chris, we spoke a couple months ago, like one or two months ago, about Owens doing commentary full-time once he either retires Ooh. from wrestling or scales back his in-ring action. So we got a taste of that here. And unfortunately, it wasn't a perfect taste. Like Owens came across very low energy for most of the show. He was funny and entertaining and engaging, but he doesn't have that booming voice that you need to have in that chair, like Corey Graves, Pat McAfee, Wade Barrett, Jerry the King Lawler, Booker T. Many others have that where you hear them on the show. Instead, Kevin Owens was kind of like talking like this, almost like he was in the background. And that is a completely different audio experience when you're a home viewer and home listener. I thought his content was like A minus, but he sounded monotone way too frequently. I still believe he has a future in that chair. He's gonna be great if they ever put him in that role. And I was entertained by him Friday, but I actually think he needs some lessons on how to do that job more effectively. You know, I actually had the exact same thought, and I hate when we always agree on this. Show. Yeah, we didn't talk about this before but, for everyone, you know, who may think that. No. Yeah. I, I thought he's very funny and stands out in the role, but when it's more than one segment, you realize, oh, there's like an actual skill to this job. You know, he was very much just kind of there making comments. It felt like when you have a guest in a football booth you know, for like a series or an inning of baseball. And they're just kind of talking casually. That's what it sounded like. It wasn't uh, he wasn't really doing as much color commentary the way you, you know, have seen Daniel Bryan or Brian Danielson do it in the past, CM Punk in the past. So, uh, yeah, and that's not to say he can't do it. You know, it's just I, I just thought it was notable for this show. Um, I generally enjoyed him on there, but there were a lot of times where it felt like, Kevin Owens is kind of overshadowing what's going on in the ring, mm -hmm. uh, which is what happens sometimes when you put active wrestlers on commentary. It does, especially people with outsized personalities like him, The Miz. You, you do have to rein them in. And yes. let's not forget, there were many times in the Attitude Era where Jerry the King Lawler was just going crazy and overshadowing Jim Ross, which is something that should never happen, right? Um, so it's just about a learning experience. So I think you know, for Kevin Owens to do it. And this isn't the first time he's done commentary. He's done it before. I don't ever remember him being as monotone or low volume, I guess, um, or, you know, without that, you know, the chest out type of uh, a tone. I don't remember that happening in the past. Maybe I just forget. But certainly, again, the content is there. The capability and the talent is there. He just needs to learn how to work the mic better. And trust me, like, I know we have the podcast and I know we've been doing this for years. I realize my mic work is not perfect here. I, I understand um, and I'm trying my best. And so for me to comment on someone else like that, especially a professional, I get it. Uh, but he, he still needs to be better in that type of role in order to do it full time. But I hope, truly hope that one day on WWE television, 
Kevin Owens is in that role, and I think he will succeed and thrive when or if he ever gets that opportunity. So I'm glad we got that out of the way to start the show. Folks, we have one of the most significant main events in terms of a depth perspective uh, that we are gonna that we've had in quite some time, really since the heyday of the bloodline. So really, I guess this time last year, let's not waste any more time. Let's kick off the show as we always do by sliding into the main event. This is the main event. And like I was kind of saying, there have been a lot of show long storylines across Raw and SmackDown over the last few years, but perhaps none involved as many different parts in a single episode as what we got regarding developments in the men's war game build on Raw. So this is going to be a two-part main event segment, the men's war game build on Raw, the women's war games build on SmackDown. I don't know why I said war game twice. That was weird. But the war games build, let me get someone to correct me here. I apologize. War games! There's the S. Uh, We're going to cover both of those in this main event segment. But this is probably going to take the vast majority of today's show for a change. Usually the good, the bad, and the ugly dominates. There's just so many elements to discuss across the board. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get right into it. So Cody Rhodes opened Raw for the first time in a while, guaranteeing he and Jey Uso would win the tag team championships later. Then he introduced the babyface War Games team. And Wade Barrett actually made a great point on how over Cody, Jey Uso, Sami Zayn, and Seth Rollins sounded with fans screaming for them, chanting for them, and singing most of their music. Judgment Day interrupted just as Cody and Seth went face to face. Judgment Day said the babyfaces are basically randoms who are fighting together, but Judgment Day is actually a family. Finn Balor tried to drive a wedge between Rhodes and Rollins, saying Cody can beat them all individually, but can't win a championship. They said Sammy's a loser and Jay's still not trustworthy. Zayn cut off Dominic Mysterio. He said they're united by mission to take power away from Judgment Day. Rhodes drove his own wedge, calling Rhea Ripley the leader, with Damian Priest replying over and again that they had no leader, before eventually snapping and calling himself the leader to get ooze from the crowd. Rollins got fed up with all the arguing. He just said, hey, four of us are already wrestling. The other four, let's have a match to start the show. And then Priest accepted on behalf of Mysterio and J.D. McDonough. Balor was clearly irked by this, and he actually snarled twice at Priest as the segment ended. So this was a really hot way to open Raw. Admittedly, it was somewhat paint by numbers as like a confrontation segment involving the same faces in Judgment Day, but the angle was fresh. And I thought trying to shake the foundation of the faction in the moment right before War Games gets underway was a unique way to go. Priest was the surprise standout. A fire was finally lit under his ass that should probably have further repercussions soon. His I'm the leader of Judgment Day comment was basically the equivalent of I don't give a damn what the tribal chief says, except like great value version, but it still hit. And the crowd audibly gasped when he said it, which was the exact reaction you want. And then Barrett's comment is something we've discussed before about all the baby faces. One of the reasons WWE is so hot right now is because they have a ton of mega over baby faces on both brands. So again, even though it was a little bit repetitive, Chris, I did think it was a hot start to Raw. Yeah, and it starts with Cody Rhodes opening Mm though. He has just not been featured for a while, as we said, and it feels different when he opens the show compared to when Sami Zayn opens the show. That's not a slight on Sami. That's just because Cody Rhodes is a top guy. 
And Wade Barrett made that comment. So, yeah, it was a little paint by numbers. And yes, it's been repetitive to have Judgment Day and somebody else tag team match, mm-hmm. you know, set up for later main event. But it, it it felt like it was larger about building toward war games and you throw in Damian Priest doing the I'm the leader stuff. It was good. It was good. Priest has been killing it on the mic mm-hmm. for the last couple of weeks, maybe months now. And uh, yeah, I, I thought this was a really good opening to the show. That was a good way to put it. It's repetitive, but this time with a purpose. A lot of the other times it yes. doesn't have a purpose other than just to build to the main event of Raw and waste time before we get to the next premium live event. This one is directly building to a big match at the premium live event. That's why it feels different. Good call. So we had Rollins and Zane against Dom and JD McDonough. Solid work both ways with the faces super over throughout. There was a straight up blatant disqualification finish with Priest and Balor grabbing Rollins and pulling him out of the ring. The men all brawled at ringside. Ripley cheered them on. McDonough sacrificed himself for Priest, eating a spear in the middle of the ring. Probably 25 referees, agents, and security all stormed down to separate everyone with Adam Pierce losing his mind for the second straight week. He banned everyone involved in war games other than the four in the tag team title match from the arena for the main event. And then Ripley went wild in Pierce's face. It was kind of impressive how they were able to mimic the energy and Pierce was able to mimic his tantrum from exactly one week ago. It was a slight eye roll in terms of a match finish, but the brawl, the crowd reaction to Pierce's announcement, Ripley losing her mind, that all made it really hot quickly. I actually felt coming into Raw that a title change was possible simply to get the tag team titles off of Priest. But this booking served as the perfect setup for the main event, getting fans watching to believe that such a title change was possible. Basically, because what they were told is the runway is now cleared. There's not going to be any interference. And now the baby faces have an opportunity to win the titles. So I thought in that way, it was immensely successful. Yeah, I had the same thought, which was, um, look, the tag team titles have kind of bounced around between these groups for a bit. Um, so I did think it was possible in, in the sense that the tag team titles don't really mean anything. Right. Which is a bad thing. Right. But overall, there was some drama that they could be moved because, hey, maybe you just want to throw them on Jay as to have a reason for Cody and Jay to go over to SmackDown for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. or longer or something, you know? So um, it did set that up in a pretty good way. So back from commercial, Pierce said Ripley and Judgment Day don't run Raw. He does. And that she is also banned. But as he was saying that, Zoe Stark stuck her nose into all the business, saying Ripley was distracted by too much and overlooking her would be costly. Ripley replied by putting over Zoe's success in NXT, calling her a future champion, saying she's going to have a great time in this industry. She's going to be a big star. It just won't happen on my brand. It was probably Ripley's best, most passionate promo in a while. Stark threw her mic at her and then avoided a blindside attack to end it. I really enjoyed how they took a major men's storyline and deftly transitioned it into the top women's storyline on Raw. Ripley was on fire, which was great to see. You could literally hear the fans' excitement level building the more passionate she got. As she kept talking and getting louder, they started like rallying behind behind her, even though she's a heel. And she kind of addressed that on the mic too. She's like, you can chant my name if you want, but that doesn't change you know, what she was about to say, which was heel stuff. She started by building up her opponent, and then after doing that, tore her apart, very Paul Heyman-esque. This was extremely well done. 
She needs to get more credit than she's getting right now for improving drastically on the mic over the last year. And while fans are still learning to appreciate Stark, she's going to get over in a major way at Survivor Series in a featured spot. This was just the continuation of a really strong 40 minutes to begin Raw. And it was another instance where Triple H and the creative team are recognizing that the women need to be a priority because what they could have easily done was ended this segment and then 20 minutes later in the show had Ripley approach Pierce backstage and pretty much done the same thing or had Ripley out and make Pierce come back out, whatever. Instead, they had them arguing at the end of the men's segment, went to commercial, came back, they were still in the ring. I really appreciated the way they did that. So there was there was good and bad, not bad, but not so good with this. Um, like you said, like that they played this off of the men's storyline. I think it elevates it. Mm-hmm. It did get better in the second half as Rhea got louder and louder. But man, the beginning of this was boring. Mm-hmm. It was like, it felt like I was watching a promo class in NXT or something like that, where it felt like they're just trying to say the thing they know they're supposed to say. It didn't feel real. I wasn't re- the beginning of Zoe's. I was just like, this is not that great. But it got better as it went on. Like you said, the crowd eventually bought into it as the energy came up, which was good because the first half of this was the thing I hate about WWE promo styles, which is just both of them talking in sarcasm to each other. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, you're not actually having a conversation. You're having a pretend conversation with each other, Uh, but it did get better in the second half when they got away from that. So that was good. And yes, Rhea has gotten so much better on the mic over the last couple of months, really. And that's been really good to see. So we had Rollins and Zayn kind of commiserating backstage when Rhodes interrupted, wanting to speak one-on-one. Cody said that he and Seth can battle all they want for the rest of the year and going forward, but he badly needs him to be on the same side with him for at least one night at War Games. Rollins said he'll probably never like Rhodes, but he respects him and promises they will be good at Survivor Series. Then he gave him a pat on the back and kind of some positive vibes to go out and win the tag team titles. I'm a bit surprised that they've leaned so heavily into Rollins and Rhodes having issues. Obviously, we know why, given their trilogy that Cody swept, by the way, winning the last match with basically one arm. And the intense confrontations between them during that feud, it got personal. That all made sense. But let's not forget, they teamed together on Raw in August. And I remember a couple other moments recently where they've interacted and maybe been wary of each other, but still been relatively positive. What I mean is that this wasn't a plot hole for me that they needed to fill because Seth has been a babyface for such a long time now. That said, it came across as like a realistic backstage segment, and that's obviously a positive as well. It just allows them to go back to being rivals in the future, but that would require Seth turning heel, and that's not a necessity, nor is... Cody going after his championship. So I enjoyed it and I thought it was well done. I just don't know that it needed to be part of the show and needs to be part of the storyline, but maybe I'm wrong. And maybe for everyone else, that's a plot hole that needed to be filled. No. Yeah. I'm glad they addressed it because yeah, if they teamed up, I'd honestly forgotten that they had teamed up. I think most of us just think Cody, they're trying to make Cody Seth feel like one of those like forever rivalries. Like you can always put, they can always have a fight. They can always be in the ring together and and do something because they've got a a good amount of history. So uh, yeah, I I had actually thought last week when the teams came together, I was like, huh, Cody and Seth, I wonder if they're going to just like do something 
to just make make clear they're on the same page. And they did. And that's that's all it needed to be. So I, I was really glad they did that. And I thought they handled it in a really good way. OK, maybe I'm on the wrong side of this one. That's totally fine. So Drew McIntyre confronted Rollins backstage. As I said, folks, there were like eight different segments all pertaining to this storyline on Raw. But McIntyre confronted Rollins backstage, admitting Seth was right, that Drew has no one to blame but himself for losing at Crown Jewel. McIntyre extended a hand that Rollins shook, with Drew saying that Seth represents WWE well as a champion, and he'll work his ass off to get a rematch. Rollins then kind of like waddled away, I think so that we as viewers could see him selling the injured back, but that's at least what I took from it. This was definitely like a foreboding type of segment meant for us to think Drew was kind of putting on a good face and they executed it well with Rollins being accepting, but perhaps a shade dismissive of him too. It was almost like McIntyre's like, hey, I'm going to get back in that in that spot and I'm going to get that title from you. And Rollins is like, okay, buddy, I'm sure you will. Like, that's the way it came off to me. So I liked that from Rollins because he beat him clean. There's no reason for him to believe that McIntyre can beat him, especially if he already took him down once with an injured back. We also got to see Seth walking away. And again, I think he was meant to be selling that injury. So they're kind of telling us he's not out of the woods, even though he's winning these matches. I thought it was a really successful backstage segment. Yes, I agree. And it was a good follow up to Crown Jewel because I'm trying to remember. I don't know if we was was McIntyre on the show last week. Or, he was. He, he drove. Really kind of got a good. He drove into the parking oh, lot. Yeah, he drove Someone up and he asked drove him a question yeah. Yeah. and then he we, just was like, F this. And he just drove out. Yeah. Yeah, so we never had a resolution to that. Correct. So more than anything, I was like, all right, we finally got Drew McIntyre's reaction to what happened at Crown Jewel, which we needed. Right. So we got that. We got, you know, all the stuff you said there. So uh, this was a very, very valuable segment that uh, I'm glad that they did. Ripley sarcastically called Priest the fearless leader backstage as they were angry. He made the earlier tag team match and made the comments earlier. Priest said that he got hot in the moment. He didn't mean it. So Ripley suggested Priest actually be the leader specifically for the War Games match. Balor and Dom were completely on board with that. They also convinced Priest that it was time to officially make McDonough a member of Judgment Day, especially since he took the spear for him earlier in his latest effort of sacrifice. Damien ultimately agreed, but he wanted to deliver the news himself because he said that he owed that to JD. Priest later caught up with McDonough, saying he can stand with him and go to war with him. Then he handed JD a Judgment Day jacket. Balor came in and approved, and they got amped up for their tag team title match. The Priest comment earlier is one of those that definitely could have not been addressed until like next week or until they needed to use it to develop a split storyline in the group. Instead, they went right back to it and also had Ripley, who is clearly the real leader of this group, take it in stride with sarcasm and almost using his screw up against him to get McDonough in the faction officially. I was going to ask earlier how JD is not a member of Judgment Day at this point, given everything that he's done, especially going into war games. But I didn't even get a chance to ask the question because, boom, they put him in the stable. Storyline was hitting for me deep into Raw, and this was, again, continuation of it that just made logical sense, not just in terms of Raw itself, but the build to war games. This was my favorite part of Raw maybe of the whole weekend of Raw and SmackDown. And it's not necessarily JD joining Judgment Day. It's what it's the whole conversation they had before that, which is why Judgment Day works so well and why I think they're kind of going to go down as one of the most memorable factions of the last 
couple of decades. Hmm. They just work their shit out. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> like we always think, oh, is this going to be when they break up? Is this going to be they they break up? No, they have some disagreements and then we see them work through it. And it's like, that's how people in real life do things. Right. And I love it. Like, I love that we don't have to think, oh, is this going to be when uh, uh, Damien Priest breaks away and does something else? And like, no, like it's just they're just having disagreements and they work it out. And I love this so much. And then you throw the eventually JD gets in judgment Day on top of that. It's like this is this is what actual friends are like. And when, hey, are you are we going to invite this person into the group chat or not? And it right. takes a while before you eventually throw out the invitation and then you do it. And this was just so well done. And I, I just I look at like the shirts Finn is wearing with the four of them as like characters. And you realize this has been a group for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. They have won almost all of the gold except for a, except for a men's world title they've held it for a while they've been carrying raw half the year sometimes it gets repetitive but i'm never bored of the four of them together and they they've just elevated each other so much uh promo wise in the ring as characters and it's largely because of backstage segments like this where we just see how they work well together and i just loved it and i wanted to really shout out that whole thing yeah i mean they've existed for a year and nine months when it comes to like the genesis with edge at the very beginning and even in this incarnation it was only a couple months after that where there were you know changes but i think what you touched on is they're not operating as a faction they call themselves a family and they operate mm -hmm. like a family the way they interact yes. with each other is we have a disagreement we work it out and then we get stronger from it and that's exactly yep. what it is. And, and and by the way, they say that on TV, but it's also reality. They all hang out together, like off screen, non kayfabe. They're they've become really close. They're friends. They travel together. You can see their social medias, the way they interact and have fun with each other. Um, I think uh, who was it? Uh, Zelina Vega this week posted a crank call that she made. She called Dominic uh, and pretended to be like a little kid. And there was a person in the background that was like saying, hey, man, you got to hang up the phone. It was Balor. Like Finn Balor was just with Dominic whenever she randomly called him and like doing that. Now, I'm sure they were on the road, probably going to a house show or something like that. But regardless, there's just that unique, legitimate closeness between them. And that immensely helps the backstage segments and all their interactions feel like they really do like each other because they do. It's why the bloodline works so well. It's why Nation of mm -hmm. Domination for a long period of time worked so well and D-Generation X as well because you actually knew all these people were friends. They all like each other. And in this case, they see each other as family. So you're right regarding pretty much everything you said. I, I, I'm in complete agreement with you. And yes, even though they do the, oh, is this going to be when they break up? But then they don't, they work it out. This did give us those vibes of, look, eventually they're going to break up. And when it happens... We got some seeds planted here. We got, you know, McDonough coming in, Priest being the one to be, go along with it, even though he's been the one most wary of him the entire time. And that just works, right? It's very similar to like when Sami Zayn eventually joined Bloodline. There was one guy who was wary of him the entire time. That guy eventually came along. It'll be interesting to see if Priest starts becoming McDonough's most, you know, vocal proponent 
in the group going forward. So just really immensely interesting the way they're doing it. And I'm glad you brought it up the way that you did. All right, let's move on. There is, again, one more segment here. The Undisputed Tag Team Championships, what we're building to this entire show, the main event, Judgment Day defending the titles against Cody and Jay. Priest looked like he was going to hit a tombstone pile driver. Instead, he did like a frontward falling slam out of the same position, which was pretty interesting. Jay got yeet chance for pretty much every strike that he threw. He also had a new yeet shirt, which I will buy if it ever goes on clearance. Uh, he went on a run okay. with an Uso splash on Damien for a false finish. The champions tried their new finisher combo, but Jay countered and super kicked Priest with Cody hitting crossroads. Then Jay speared Balor and they hit the Cody for a broken fall. Priest ran Rhodes into the ring post, which for the first time ever finally broke. One of those metal pieces came off. I loved that. I know it wasn't on purpose, but still. I was just wondering when that would finally transpire. Uh, Jay hit a Tope Con Hero outside, only for McIntyre to appear out of the crowd, Claymore his head off, with Balor shocked but quickly covering for the one, two, three to retain the titles. The faces stared down Drew, who was up at the top of the stage. When Rhea Ripley walked out, they shook hands, and Raw went off the air. Let me first up say 3.75 stars B plus for the match. I thought it was immensely fun, but never really believed there would be a title change. In terms of the show storyline though, plane landed. McIntyre's heel turn is officially complete and it was both smartly and reasonably done because he specifically took out Jay, the one guy he's had a problem with from the jump. One of the best current traits of WWE creative under Triple H is that the wrestlers remember. Everyone had a different reaction to Jay going to Raw. Cody made it happen and immediately accepted him. Sammy was slightly hesitant, but took him in. Kevin Owens was immensely wary, but eventually got one over because of Sammy. Drew never bought in and was way too jilted about not being champion to take it, especially when he didn't satisfy that craving by beating Rollins. Jay had a great sell on this also. He knew what was coming the second he saw McIntyre, knew it was unavoidable, and he just took the Claymore. What McIntyre told Rollins backstage about like respecting him, that actually didn't conflict with attacking Jay. Yet obviously McIntyre made his decision to go to the dark side, and it's clear this is gonna be five on five as we hoped it would be at War Games. As we've said before, Sirius Drew is the best Drew. Whether heel or face, Sirius Drew, jeans, black tank top, you love that look, I love that look. That's what we Hello. got here on Raw Monday night, and it was fantastic. It also firmly established Ripley as the Judgment Day leader because it was her plan coming together. She once again saved a title change, despite adversity in this case because of Pierce. This in the same show, by the way, where Priest claimed to be in charge. That is really smart storytelling. Now we'll discuss how this may, may transpire um, in terms of war games in the later in this main event segment today. I wanna put that separate. But in terms of what we got to close Raw, Chris, this was a perfect capper to an extremely strong show long storyline. Yeah, one of those one of those finishes where it's not like, oh my God, I can't believe it happened, but more of the, all right, we're, do, we're doing that now. Like something you thought could happen for a while. They teased it for a few weeks with Rhea talking to him and, and all this kinds of stuff. And you're like, all right, he did it. This is it. So like, I, I thought it was built up well. And like you said, Jay's reaction to it, as opposed to being like complete shock, like, he handled that well. Ultimately, uh, while we went in thinking at the beginning, hey, maybe we could get a title change here. You understand why they didn't. Sets everything up well. Uh, like you said, 
Not sure what this means for McIntyre in Survivor Series, but you're right that it again paints Rhea as the leader with her out without her ever saying without her ever saying that she is the leader. Yeah. In fact, she's only dismissed that notion. Yet her actions mm-hmm. prove that she is. And there's really no debating that, which I just find to be immensely interesting. So like I said, we're going to go back to talking about men's war games in a moment. First, we're going to transition to the second part of today's co-main event, which is on SmackDown involving the women of that brand. So Bailey hit the ring, sharing that her vision for damage control came true with the women's tag team titles, Ms. Money in the Bank, and EO Sky winning the WWE Women's Championship. She had to battle like those absurd what chants, saying that she was blindsided by the return of Kyrie Sane, and that's not how damage control operates. So Kyrie, Dakota Kai, they came out with EO, and EO said, hey, I'm allowed to have a plan too. I'm the champion, and my plan worked. So what are you worried about? Bailey said she was skeptical and showed the 2020 attack of Kyrie that basically wrote Sane off of WWE when she went back to Japan. Dakota said they added Kyrie to the group to get stronger and to ease Bailey's burden. Kyrie said that she respects Bailey as the leader and forgives her. She opened her arms for a hug. Bailey said, I don't do that anymore, which got me to laugh out loud. I thought that was a great line. But <laughs> the other three women forced her to hug them. And as they like got their arms around her, she kind of relented and gave a half smile, almost like remembering what it's like to have that closeness. So then Bianca Belair, Charlotte Flair, and Asuka came out and actually said nothing. Like, like she, Bianca like said, I hate you all. And then just announced the other two women. And then they just stood there and the segment ended and it was later announced that there's going to be a match between all of them on the show. This felt to me like one of those Saturday night live skits that just has no ending and it just stops. So I loved Chris, the opening segment with damage control and Kyrie. I thought that was executed perfectly. But then once the baby faces came out, the entire thing for me fell off a cliff. Did you feel the same way? Uh, No, because I saw that and I was like, oh, we're setting up a women's war games or Survivor Series match here. And this is the natural progression of that. Going back to the damage control promo, I think that was an exact, you know, opposite of what we just said about Judgment Day, of how on screen they work things out and you're totally like in on it. I could not connect to what damage control was saying. Maybe part of that is just language barriers and stuff like that, but they don't have the communication that we got from Judgment Day. So it was a little a little weird. And then the faces come out and you're like, okay, we're, we're, we're setting this up now. Bianca, by the way, in that like red sequin thing, oh, yeah. like, holy crap, just really jumped out. Got mm-hmm. me saying, hey, now. And I was like, again, kind of another type of look for her. But it was weird that they kind of just didn't, Say anything other than Asuka doing her thing. It look good, but she's got me saying, hey now. Yeah, I think for me, it's that Raw has spent so much time on Judgment Day that we're fully versed in their relationship. When it comes to damage yeah. control, the only time we ever see them interact, and maybe some of it's the language barrier with Io, which is acceptable, even though she speaks English and does so pretty well. I think a lot of it is the only time we've ever really seen them interact backstage was when like Bailey's making a match for them that Io disagrees with. And and that's yeah. been it. 
There's never been like EO taking, you know, there's never been like EO taking her you know aside that, and saying, Hey Bailey, I don't like that you're yeah. doing this. And I, you know, I, I want to make decisions too, where then it bubbles up into this. It was just like Kyrie showed up and then EO kind of took some control, but we never really got an inkling previously other than EO like using her eyes to like side eye Bailey while she was talking. We've never really gotten like the actual character development and interweaving storytelling bef- between all three of them. And I think that Chris is the difference between like Judgment Day and Damage Control. Yeah, and the, the best interaction, honestly, of damage control I've seen was the SummerSlam press conference. That was yes, when they really exactly. felt like they were really good friends and together. We mm-hmm. have not gotten nearly enough of that. Right. So it's like you're jumping into this thing where, oh, they're so close. So Bailey's getting blindsided by Kyrie, but it's like, are they really that close? You know, it, it's different than Judgment Day, right? And also the way it transpired too. But but I, I thought Bailey did a really good job. And again, she had to fight the crowd this entire segment. That crowd yeah. sucked in Columbus. I'm mean, straight up. It was terrible. So it was a bad crowd. Number one, they were protesting her, not protesting her, but the equivalent of that with the what chance they're trying to tell a storyline. And I don't think anyone knew that this segment was going to go as long as it ultimately did. But, you know, for them to start the segment with that kind of energy turned the whole thing off. And I think that's probably what you felt and what others felt. Yeah. I kind of looked through it and I was just like, okay, I really like the storytelling they're giving us. So that's a little bit of the difference. There. Real quick, real quick. Do we know what Asuka said? Because as it cut back, Kyrie Sane looked like she was laughing. <laughs> so I don't know what Asuka yeah. was yelling so in Japanese. There's actually a, like, there's actually a great Twitter account and I should probably retweet their stuff because they do it for WWE and AEW, but they literally put subtitles on whenever Japanese performers speak. Mm. And uh, Asuka basically just said like, Hey, EO, hey, Kyrie, um, like I'm going to kick your asses and like bash your heads together. It was something very, it, it wasn't any, it was not anything that would indicate something was going to happen, I guess is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Okay. It made it sound like she was a baby face. No, I just wanted to, like, I just wanted to, she like told a joke or something that was funny to people who knew Japanese, but oh, if she didn't, you didn't know. No, no, no. I, I think it was just them reacting like, okay, sure, Asuka, like you're going to go do that to us. Like one of those types gotcha. of deals. So let's move to what the main event match was. I mentioned it. Bel Air, Flair, Asuka against Damage Control. Asuka pulled away from a Bel Air tag late, instead misting her partner in the face and then jumping into the ring and challenging Kyrie to fight, only for Asuka and Sane instead to hug. Io jumped into the ring, joined them in the hug, and Bailey was down in the corner. She hesitated, but they waved her in, so she hugged them as well. And this time it was like an energetic hug. Like she was really involved and wanted to do it. The referee called a no contest as the heels beat Charlotte Flair four on one. Shotzi saved them and ate a rose plant. EO hit Charlotte with over the moonsault. Belair took a back fist from Sane plus a legitimately great insane elbow with Kyrie taunting Bianca after that. Then the five heels celebrated together to end SmackDown. So there's a lot more to unpack here still. The kayfabe aspects all made perfect sense to me. EO is champion taking some semblance of control, surrounding herself with people that she truly trusts, but not just that, has experience with from the earlier part of her life, appropriately showing the Bailey attack on Kyrie earlier to temporarily settle it before an expected turn, I think we all know is coming. Asuka going full heel. Let's not forget, she's kind of been like Drew McIntyre. She's been a tweener since WrestleMania, and she already misted Belair in the face which led to her losing the title eventually. So it was fair for Bianca, the goody two-shoes babyface, to forgive and forget, 
but it did cost her doing so. She should have been more wary of Asuka in that moment. I more like, honestly, Cody and Seth is how she should have been. I loved how these power moves played out with the group leader in Bailey kind of oblivious to it. The execution was great. Bailey hesitated for the hug, her old gimmick, but finally got lured into being comfortable in the end. Definitely got vibes of a future hug attempt that leads to Bailey getting kicked out. Uh, it's clear that babyface Bailey is back on the menu as far as I'm concerned. I think we talked about that last week, and that is a needed change in direction for her. Plus, it seems like we're getting a truly top-tier Joshi supergroup on WWE television. Everyone seems to know what is coming. Now, as viewers, we just have to wait and see it play out. And on top of that, I'll end on this, Kyrie's look and presentation was completely on point from her makeup to her clothes, to her gear, just extremely strong across the board leading into the War Games build, which is probably gonna start more earnestly next week. I just wish the crowd was hotter, but if SmackDown stays consistent with the women, that is going to come in time just like it has on Raw. Seeing Damage Control revitalized after all of this time was awesome. I love that you just used the phrase back on the menu. <laughs> I don't think I've heard I don't think I'd heard that other than people making jokes uh, using the Lord of the Rings meme. Uh, looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. So uh, I, I'm gonna, I wanna try to add that to my uh, vocabulary. There you go. Uh, moving forward, good good use of there. Um, but you're right. Um, it does feel like the five person group isn't going to stay together for a long time, uh, but it does look like it's gonna stay together right now. The turn surprised me. I was like, oh, Cool. Like, and just like with McIntyre, like, okay, it makes sense. Like, you're not like stunned by it, but in the moment you're like, ooh, okay, okay. I'm, I'm into it. I'm into it. Um, definitely worked uh, and was a nice surprising finish to SmackDown. And, the, and, and I guess I'll stop there because we'll talk about war games and, and what happens next. Sure. Well, I did want to bring up one other thing before we get to the war games. So we didn't see this on TV, but you can find it on social media. Maybe I'll retweet it. There was a bonus segment where the other four women kind of shaded Bailey backstage. They made plans to like go out and celebrate after the show. And she, of course, wanted to go with them. And that brings me to another couple points, one of which you just mentioned. Because I've said a few times now that a quick turn on Bailey feels inevitable. I'm not sure if anyone saw the photo of all five of them together that we tweeted out on Friday. But it is great that Damage Control was a group. And look, maybe we'll get a new Joshi group soon, but I've long wanted a true women's faction, like a real faction. And all five of them together, it kind of came across like a modern female NWO. They had two surprising additions in one week, including a future first ballot Hall of Famer as the kicker. Doesn't that sound familiar? They absolutely destroyed all the ma major baby faces on SmackDown, and they stood tall as the show went off the air. It would be so cool to see the five of them legitimately dominate and run roughshod over SmackDown to the point that Belair, Flair, and anyone else struggled to stop them. I kind of feel like this should have happened a month ago. That way they could have done all of this. And then you could say, okay, who the hell are these baby faces gonna find to stop them? They add those people 
And that's the War Games match. Instead, they're basically doing it in a two-week period of time. Six weeks would have been fantastic. But that would have been, if they had done it longer out, a great way to like add Jade Cargill into the equation. She comes in as the difference maker and is immediately involved in a top-tier storyline. So yeah, I just wanted to say like, even if we only get five-person damage control for two weeks, I'm all about it. And this is something I've wanted out of WWE, out of professional wrestling in the United States for a really long time. Yeah, that, that's that's a good point. Um, I pulled up the picture. It looks really cool. You mentioned Kyrie's look. I'm, I'm loving it compared to kind of what she was before she left. So good change up there. Yeah, women's faction. It, it all looks good. My question, I guess, is when they turn on Bailey, are they just going to turn on Bailey or are they going to turn on Bailey and Dakota? It's interesting because Dakota seemed to be fully on board with Kyrie and like knew that was happening. So it seems like Bailey was the only one left out of the loop. I would hope that Dakota remains with them. If not, and we get Dakota and Bailey kind of going off as baby faces, I would love to see them add like Blair Davenport, the former Bea Priestley, who's currently in NXT. She has a lot of experience with them, I believe, from stardom. I think she was in. Um, there's also been talk about adding Julia, who's currently in stardom, although that may be a few months off. So there's a number of people that they could add to this group, even if Bailey and or Dakota get excommunicated. But again, I just I would love to have a true women's faction. And as long term listeners know, a faction or a stable is four plus people and damage control for a long time has only been three. So it's been a group this entire time. Uh, so I don't know. I got, but the vibes coming out of Friday and again, seeing that picture of all them standing together, that just hit me in the feel spot. I absolutely loved it. I wanted to say it before. Maybe we never get an opportunity to say it again. <laughs> so that's why I wanted to drop that here. Now, moving on to the two war games matches, we're going to start with the men and then we're going to talk about the women. Obviously, we just spent a lot of time talking about it. War games was initially advertised by WWE this year as five on five, which is a bit odd because the guys are now seemingly set for a 10 man match, but the women look like they're probably just going to be eight people because Dakota, let's not forget, is not cleared. She can't wrestle. So unless they're going to add three women in the next week to the women's storyline, I see it being four on four. So let's start with the guys. And there is a spoiler out there that we're not going to share here. But the way I see it, Chris, is there's four options for a babyface to join the men's team against Judgment Day plus Drew McIntyre. One is Kevin Owens. He's been embroiled in this feud for a long time. Yes, he's now on SmackDown. But let's not forget Friday night, he was just suspended in kayfabe. So maybe he becomes available for Raw. Number two, Randy Orton. We've been reporting for a couple months now on buymeacoffee.com slash getting over that his return is imminent. He has the Cody relationship and it is pretty much team Cody, even though Seth is the champion. But let's not forget Orton left at odds with Jay. And for a guy coming off back surgery, major back surgery, returning in war games, it's a pretty huge ask. <laughs> but obviously he can be protected in the match. They can do a good job working around that. Three, AJ Styles, similar to Owens, not on Raw, currently on SmackDown, but a top-tier babyface who would get a huge pop as a comeback. You have the Balor connection wanting to fight him. You have the Rollins connection because they feuded. I still think that Styles is next for Roman Reigns, but he could fit into this match. And then number four, you guys are probably waiting for me to get to it, CM Punk. 
simply because they're going to be in Chicago and it would be electric. The key is going to be not leaving the spot open going into the show because there absolutely will be CM Punk chance and perhaps a level of disappointment if it's left as a mystery and Punk does not fill it. That is the key. WWE should avoid that in whatever way they can. Either KO or Orton, they make the most sense to me. They should be announced either next Monday or Friday. There is the idea of doing the big return at the premium live event. It's very attractive, but big returns on TV are good and they also enhance viewership. And again, we talked about it at the top of the show, Survivor Series is going against Rivalry Week for college football. So even though they don't get ratings and even though people can watch it on Peacock at any time, you do want people watching it live. And whether it's KO or whether it's Orton, you want to build that match way before you get to Chicago. And Kevin Owens, as we alluded to earlier in the show, was suspended from SmackDown uh, in a social media clip by Nick Aldis after the show. So like maybe he just is gone for a little bit and shows up on the go home or shows up on the show or, or something. So that's where I would kind of lean toward it going for a, for a, for a minute. You know, we thought this might be uh, LA Knight or something, but it appears him and the bloodline are not really uh, involved in this. So my, my guess would be Kevin Owens if they are going to five, but I have another question, which is sure. Do you think this should be a war games match? When, when do we have the war games versus survivor series conversation? We want to have it now. Do we want to have it during the go home? What do you think? I think probably during the go home, but this match with judgment day, absolutely war games. Like it's, I I can just tell you straight up there's, it's been going on for so long and there's been so many incarnations Mm of tag team, six man singles matches. You have, this is the exact type of storyline that you need to say, we got to end this once and for all. We got to, we got to put this to bed war games. And I think this is very much appropriate for that. And in the women's match, I, I I didn't know if Dakota Kai was cleared or not. You said she's not. She's I not. saw that. And so, oh, we got five women. We can do a survivor series with the women, a war games with the men. Cause I don't think they've said we're, they, they haven't said war games yet for the women. Right. So like, is a Survivor Series match on the table, do you think? Yeah, I do think it's on the table. And I actually believe that Survivor Series makes more sense for the women because it's not as fiery of a feud as the Judgment Day running roughshod over Raw storyline is. Again, let's not forget, Asuka just turned on Bel Air. Kyrie Sane just returned. So these are things that are just immediately transpiring. They're not these long-term issues that have been kind of simmering under the surface. Now, yes, Belair has had problems with damage control for a while. Yes, Charlotte Flair got beaten uh, by them. Um, yes, EO Sky took the title off of, I believe it was Belair when she cashed and missed money in the bank. So like there is animosity there, but it's kind of like Survivor Series elimination animosity. It's not really War Games animosity, but I have to believe WWE is of the mindset that if we're setting up two rings, we're not using them for one match. Like that just the way I think they think, I really do wish, yeah. and I'm a little bit surprised, Chris, and we'll, we'll talk about this now, and maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more next week, but they did two weeks of Nick Aldis and Adam Pierce being at odds with one another, and they didn't do that at all this week, and it seemed like that was building a Raw versus SmackDown Survivor Series match, and yet there's nothing even close to that happening right now. So unless they bubble that up this coming Friday and then into Monday, That means there's not going to be Raw versus SmackDown. And there wasn't Raw versus SmackDown last year. And that's fine because they decided to do the War Games gimmick. But it 
was pretty obvious to me that that's the direction they were going, except they just dropped it. So I'm a little bit confused. Maybe someone got hurt. I don't really know. But do you have that same kind of feeling? That's a good point, because I had been we had been thinking, hey, they're building that up clearly. And then we wonder, hey, do they do one War Games match and then a separate Raw versus SmackDown match with all the mid carters? Like maybe. But then are you talking like a four match card, five match card? I I don't know. It, it is notable that they very much have completely dropped it. Yeah, so, I, I don't like uh, unless something unless something sudden happens on SmackDown. It does feel like they've gone away from it. Say that again, unless something sudden happens on SmackDown. Unless something sudden happens on SmackDown, it does feel like they have completely dropped that. Yeah, and that's frustrating for me too because I've said this many times. I like the Survivor Series match, like the concept of it. And it's fine to do two war games and a Survivor Series. You start you and close, you open and close with one war games each. You do Survivor Series in the middle of the show. You do singles matches around it. Very possible to do that. Let's not also forget they did like the whole Avengers Assemble moment at the end of TV. I forget if it was SmackDown or Raw like six weeks ago. I think this was when Cody and Jay still had the uh, tag team championships and they were on SmackDown. So it was them, LA Knight, et cetera. And it looked like the bloodline was going to get involved with Judgment Day. And this was all going to be together as part of War Games. And then they never mm-hmm. kind of went back to that. So maybe that was just a really hot moment for one show. And it that's fine. You're allowed to have just hot moments on TV where there's crossover that doesn't get addressed again. But it seemed like we were getting that. It seemed like we were getting Raw versus SmackDown. Instead, we're left, it seems like, with two War Games matches. And I don't think that's bad, necessarily, but it does feel like something changed. And I'd be very curious to find out if there was a booking plan, someone got hurt, or they just decided not to do it. They thought it'd be too many matches for the show. Maybe they do a Survivor Series match on the Go Home SmackDown, where they quickly build it up. There's a number of different things that they could do. I know I don't like that either. I'm just saying, but it could be like a preview. It's that. it's the night before the show. So don't forget, like it's a way to like get into it. But again, I'm just kind of spitballing here, but we talked about the men. Let's go to the women. Okay. I thought it would have made sense to do a double turn on Friday with Bailey joining the faces and the heels, therefore being the team that needs to add someone. Instead, there's now a baby face slot open because you have Oscar. Io Sky, Kyrie Sane, and Bailey. Again, Dakota Kai is not cleared against Bianca Belair, Charlotte Flair, and Shotzi, who's kind of thrown into this a little bit because she happened to team with Charlotte last week. And also she did feud with Bailey, but they didn't really bring that up again. So if there's one face slot open, like with the men, I think there's four options. One, Mia Yim, who is great in these matches. She's a clear baby face. And was in this last year. She was in the War Games match last year and was fantastic, but she has not been involved in this whatsoever. Then there's Zelina Vega, but she is currently involved in another storyline right now. Number three, Becky Lynch, who is Belair's lone true friend remaining in WWE right now and was also on the team last year. But again, kind of like Kevin Owens, who's on SmackDown, she's on Raw. And then number four is Jade Cargill, potentially making her debut, which would explain why they spent so much time talking about her. And then she's been off TV for the last couple of weeks because that's usually what WWE does before they're going to have someone come in and do a surprise deal. So I do think those are the four women that are up for this final spot. And it does seem like it's going to be four versus four, which is slightly disappointing because War Games is better as five on five. Yeah, you know, we talked about when they signed Jade Cargill, how are they going to debut her? Is it going to be a rumble? Do you put her right in the title picture? 
But honestly, I think this might be the ideal place to do it. You put her right next to Charlotte and Bianca, and she can be protected by the style of the match where she doesn't have to do everything. If the faces win, she stands tall next to them. You've immediately established her. Mm -hmm. Look, she's on the level of all these people. You saw them interacting backstage. Maybe Jade wins them the match, and uh, you you go from there. And you've, you've brought in a new woman who you can instantly feel like is near the top of the card. That may ultimately be the best way to do this i think yeah there you go all right well that was an extended main event as promised we were going to dive deep into that next week we will have our wwe survivor series war games ultimate preview where we will provide predictions for these matches and we may know everyone involved in them by the time we get to next week's show but at this point it is time to move to our next segment here on the getting over wrestling podcast where we cover everything else that happened across smackdown and Raw this week. You know it. You love it. It is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Then I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez. I call a spade a spade. It just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Same dude to give you ice and you own some... Jordan. It's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in the articles that I read. All right, so I'm going to start with this because we touched on it a little bit in the main event, uh, but it's not the biggest storyline that's remaining here. Stark and Shayna Baszler had like a frenemies type of backstage segment later on Raw with Stark all juiced up to take down Ripley and Baszler saying that she should have been champion at Crown Jewel, but admitting that Zoe's been on a roll and she's actually going to be rooting for her. Raquel Rodriguez came in and did the same. Then Nia Jax called them all pathetic saying they had to gang up to beat her and no one can take her one-on-one. So Raquel stepped right to Nia with probably, correct me if I'm wrong, the single most believable promo of her entire main roster career, confident (laughs) that she would take Nia down whenever they go at it to the point that she was so confident Jax walked away from the situation. I thought this was a really refreshing segment and it touches on what I've talked about for years, including last week and earlier on the show, with the women developing backstage relationships and getting multiple storylines outside of the title picture. This was a really good segment to establish characters and relationships, all while continuing storytelling based off of a match that happened just two weeks ago. Yeah, this was a good follow-up because look, Zoe starts doing the stuff with Rhea. They've added so many women to storylines throughout both shows you kind of got to keep following up with that so we stay kind of aware of them and connected with them. And this was a terrific follow-up for every point you said. And Raquel Rodriguez standing up to Nia Jax and Nia Jax backing down was great. That was good. I'm looking forward to whatever comes out of that. So this was definitely a good. And then next week on Raw. Oh, we got two big meaty men bumping me tonight. We got Raquel and Nia, which is a big TV match. So that's exciting as well. By the way, I think we touched on this subject a couple weeks ago, but coming out of this week, it's even more topical. And I tweeted about this on Monday night, but we heavily criticized Triple H for his booking of the women's division going into WrestleMania and then going into SummerSlam too. He has taken that criticism from us and certainly from others and made substantial changes to his booking of the women's division. There's really, for me, no question about it. He has revitalized this division just like we hoped he would 
after storylines ended at SummerSlam. There were 17 women featured on Raw this Monday, which is like the fourth week in a row it's been in double digits and I've pointed that out. Maybe longer than that. It feels like the women are now legitimately like 33% of Raw when it used to be like 15% if they were lucky. Nearly every woman on the Raw and SmackDown rosters were on TV this week. I actually did the math. The only active, healthy women that we did not see on TV this week were Katana Chance and Caden Carter, Unholy Union, Mi Chen, Scarlett, and Tamina. That's seven women combined on Raw and SmackDown. There were 27 of them used. So 80% of the available women's roster was on TV across both shows. That is exceptionally great. I am the game, JR. There is nobody that eats, now, sleeps, or breathes this business more than me. I think you forgot that was a double sound drop right there. Uh, but yeah, I, I forgot. I, but <laughs> but, I, but I, I love what he's doing. And look, I'm not saying all the booking is great. I'm not saying the fans are reacting to it like they're the men. You know, there's not like an LA night out of the women right now on SmackDown. But you have to take some of these small steps to eventually get there. And that's what he's doing. And that's what I'm praising. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is it? too much all at once. We've got a lot of women women over the last couple of weeks who are showing up who have just are basically forgotten by by much of the audience. Yeah, agreed. Zia Lee, Indy Hartwell, Tegan Knox, Shotzi to a degree. Um, yeah. Some Shotzi, some some of the others and it's like it, it it's, I'm kind of a too much. Is it too much for people to pay attention to or is it you throw everybody out there and you see who stands out. Mm -hmm. And then those are the people you go behind. That That's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if it's a like, all right, let's see what we got from out of this group. And does anybody here stand out uh, and deserve to? Or will they kind of narrow it back down in the coming months? And I'm not saying do it right away. You got to give people time. You got to give them TV time over multiple weeks, maybe months to fully form opinions on them. So I do wonder if by the end of the year, they start kind of cutting, not cutting, but like narrowing down how many women are on TV again. There's also like dividing up the roster, right? We've talked about the women developing relationships and, you know, creating some tag teams. They need to determine who are the main event women. They pretty much have that answer. That's the answer they've always had because they were the only ones featured. But they need to know who are the mid-card and upper mid-card women that we can elevate into title opportunities here and there, larger storylines, pushes where maybe they get over and become main eventers. And then who are the other women? And those other women, what are we gonna do with them? We're gonna make them into tag teams. And we're gonna, gonna ensure that that division is solid as well. And once they accomplish that, then they have a real women's division. It's always been this mishmash of just, again, a couple really top tier names on both shows, and then other people who are around who sometimes get involved in stuff, but largely are not on television. Let's not forget, Liv Morgan is going to be coming back soon. She's going to be in that main event division. Sonya Deville is going to be back at some point. Um, Carmella, I mean, she's probably maybe a year away, maybe nine months away. I don't know how long she wants to be with her baby after obviously just giving birth. But you have Carmella out there. You have Alexa Bliss, who still hasn't been on TV. She, I think, is also pregnant now after getting married. So yep. like, th but there, so there's a lot of names that are going to be part of this division. The, but number, the number one thing you have to do is you have to tell your audience that they're just as important as the men. The, the division is smaller. There's fewer women. So if they get 33% of the show, I'm not saying that's 
equality because equality is 50-50. But in terms of numbers, that would be utilizing the women as much as the men based on the numbers in each division. And that's the goal, ultimately. It's not saying they need to be 50% of the show. There are some episodes they should be. There are some episodes maybe they should be more than that, right? You see that on NXT all the time. There's NXT episodes where it happened at least once where every match had women. There was a mixed tag team match with men, but every other match on the show was women. Frequently on NXT, the majority of matches, the majority of storylines involve women. That's great. That should be able to happen on the main roster occasionally as well. But you gotta build up the division before you can get there. And I think you're right, Chris. They're throwing a lot of stuff on TV. They're saying who's hitting and in what divisions are they hitting? Where is it working out? What tag teams are wrestling well together? And they're starting to put it all together. It's just really cool to see it happen after so long that we have spent criticizing it, especially going into Mania and especially going into SummerSlam. We said, hey, coming out of Mania, Triple H has a chance to redo this. And he did it. And then we said, okay, they're still telling a lot of those storylines from Mania to SummerSlam. Coming out of SummerSlam now, he has a chance to do it. And he did. And I'm just excited that that's happening. I'm not saying it's fixed. I'm not saying it's incredible creative right now, but it is a huge step in the right direction from what WWE has been doing. Agree. All right, let's move to the rest of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, Rey Mysterio and the LWO open SmackDown with Rey confident Logan Paul would never have defeated him without the brass knuckles. He promised to get a rematch when Carlito interrupted, pointing out that Mysterio should be blaming Santos Escobar for leaving the knucks on the apron. Escobar flipped. He stormed out of the ring through the crowd with Ray and Zelina Vega following him, pretty concerned. Wild and Del Toro stayed with Carlito, though they did argue with him a little bit. So we had Carlito against Bobby Lashley. Wild and Del Toro remained ringside with the Street Profits out for Lashley and B-Fab watching on a monitor backstage. Ashanti the Adonis came up and they ended up walking away together. The Prophets talked shit all match to the point it was kind of distracting. Montez Ford distracted Carlito enough for Lashley to hit a flatliner. And then Angelo Dawkins just wrecked shit at ringside. Escobar ran out to help LWO, but Ford kicked Carlito and Lashley hit the spear to win. The heels beat down Carlito after the bell as Escobar stood on the ring apron, seemingly confused about what to do. He just watched it happen. Mysterio got them to leave the ring by running out with the steel chair. They argued with Escobar pulling Mysterio back to him twice. Ray shoved him saying they're all family as LWO. Escobar was going to leave, but he saw Ray like bend over helping Carlito and he hit him one time from behind. Then he lifted Ray, basically kind of like to talk, only for Mysterio to strike him twice. Ray apologized, but Santos ran him into the ring post. Ray's leg got trapped, so Escobar dropkicked the steps, saying he loved Ray and it was supposed to be them too. Zelina ran out yelling before she, Wilde, and Del Toro all helped Mysterio. Escobar stormed out of the arena on his own, saying Mysterio had it coming. And then Kevin Owens said, Ray is the only person who should never be turned on by anyone. He just doesn't understand why so many people dislike him. I can tell you why, KO, because he's a deadbeat dad. Clearly, everyone else sees this except for us as fans. Uh, But look, this segment was really interesting to decipher from a critical perspective because I loved that they paid off the brass knuckles moment and that it wasn't a plot hole. But the heel turn as it transpired, and I can only speak for myself here, it came off immensely lame and also boring, but not only that, a little confusing. If Escobar left the Nux on the ring apron on purpose at Crown Jewel, he should have owned it, attacked Carlito, and then attacked Mysterio when he came out with Wild and Del Toro probably on his side. 
at that point, if you want him to show regret, the looking at your hands, what did I just do type of thing, that would have played. He had plenty of reasons to do it on purpose, including Ray taking his US title shot, and now Ray welcoming Carlito into the fold, and maybe even positioning him over Santos. Instead, Escobar just stood there pondering and pondering. He then half-ass attacked Ray, with the idea being that Mysterios is idle and a legend, but he's jealous that Ray is giving more attention to Carlito. And now he's on his own, which really doesn't make sense because LWO is comprised almost entirely of Legato del Fantasma, though obviously that can change this week or in future weeks. It felt to me like they were trying to do something quote unquote better than a simple heel turn by telling a nuanced story involving jealousy. But if it wasn't Escobar's intention to screw Mysterio and he just saw Ray favor Carlito and then that led him to snap, that's pretty weak. But it also should have been something, Chris, that played out across two or three weeks with some of the teases that we got in this segment eventually leading to a heel turn. Instead, it was rushed into like a double segment on one show with the story not being fully told. Santos can always explain himself next week, but we're grading this based on Friday alone, and this is probably gonna surprise everyone. Maybe not, based on what I just said. I'm gonna go bad here. It was the right concept, executed in what I think was a shockingly poor manner, especially since it took up the entire first 30 minutes of SmackDown. The crowd seemed like half interested in it, I believe for the reasons I mentioned. The part I liked most was how Escobar's comment to Ray reminded me of Batista screaming, you're supposed to be my friend. And Escobar was like, you're supposed to be my family. You're supposed to be my idol. Very similar in that regard. But again, I love heel Escobar. I love Legado del Fantasma. I love LWO. I'm glad they did the heel turn. The execution for me, though, it just fell flat. Um, it, it was partly flat. I wasn't as down on it as you were. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a good. I loved Carlito just getting to the point like right away, like because that was the question we had coming out of Crown Jewel. And so I'm glad they got into it. And with Escobar, it was, I don't know, it, it was kind of like, it wasn't like a, I, it, feel, it kind of felt like he made a mistake and he doesn't kind he kind of doesn't want to admit he made a mistake and he's just like panicking and running out of there or like just lashing out, um, which he can explain more this week and I'm kind of curious how that'll go. Um, so hit and miss in spots. I agree though that it should have been more than one episode where this happens. Um, I think you could have built to it a little quicker. I'm sorry, not quicker, uh, over multiple shows and more kind of direct. Yeah, that's just how it came across to me. Now, I was initially going to say here that my hope coming out of this is that Legato fully goes back with Escobar, including Zelina, and their heel Legato del Fantasma, which is the best version of that faction. Then you have those three guys against Rey Mysterio, Carlito, and Dragon Lee in a lucha feud, three on three. They're on the show already. It makes a lot of sense. And then if you do that, you put Legato over. They're the younger guys. You know, they get really popular, and that's just how I would book it if I had the chance. It makes too much sense to me. Another option is to bring Angel Garza and Humberto Carrillo up from NXT. You can pair them with either Escobar or Ray, depending which side the Legato guys go to. But the reason why that's not my take as of right now is because Ray Mysterio posted on Facebook as we were taping the show that he just underwent and completed knee surgery. He said it was successful and payback is on the horizon. Oh. Now, 
that could very well be arthroscopic surgery, like a knee scope, where it's only a couple of weeks and he's back pretty soon. And they just need to tell the story without him for a couple of weeks. That's totally fine. Or it could be more serious knee surgery where Ray is out for an extended period of time. The way he said, though, he's going to get payback on Escobar soon makes me think it was not a ligament damage or, or anything like that. So that's positive. But now the question is, what the hell do we get this coming Friday? Because you're not going to have more Escobar and Ray interactions. Does Escobar maybe try to get the rest of the LWO to go with him? And he becomes the leader of LWO. They change it to Legato. What happens with Carlito? There's just a lot of interesting things that they can do, but not having Ray involved is even more reason for me why this should have played out over a number of weeks, as opposed to being this immediate turn right here where now Ray is not available and they're have to they're gonna have to work without him. Well, I think the need thing kind of makes me more understanding as to maybe why they did this now, uh, why they did it quicker. But you're right. I, I don't know what's gonna happen on SmackDown, so I'm curious how they'll handle it. By the way, I mentioned this a bit ago, but like Eddie Guerrero, Chavo Guerrero, Batista, Edge, Dominic Mysterio, now Santos Escobar. At what point do we admit that Ray is the problem? And like, maybe he's the ultimate heel and everyone else is a babyface, and we're seeing this from the wrong vantage point. Speaking of, speaking of uh, Eddie, um, Monday Night Raw was the anniversary of his uh, death. And I don't think I saw any acknowledgement, at least uh, on television about it. That's surprising that they didn't do anything. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Even For nothing from Dominic or anything. Yeah, that's really strange. I did have a DM that came in that I wanted to address here before we move on. Chase Goldstein at Chasing Gold 38. He said, wasn't that Bobby Lashley's first televised match in ages? If so, that wasn't without any fanfare. Not sure I like how Lashley has become the new MVP. The man still has a lot left. So it was his first singles match in a month and his third since returning, but he's only been back about a month. I think people forget that. In terms of wrestling in the ring, he's been back for a couple months. I think you're just forgetting that he was off TV for like four full months before that, trying to get a break. So to answer your question, though, not everyone needs to wrestle all the time. He's 47. He may look 37, but he's 47. And he's leading other guys who can do the dirty work for him. He's probably just now beginning that transition into the legend part of his career. Think about it. Edge and Christian are 50. Lashley will go through stretches most likely where he's involved in a feud, he wrestles a lot, and then he's probably going to be involved in stretches where he doesn't, where he's just kind of helping lead storylines. I think that's fine. WWE is trying to get a lot of younger talent over, and Lashley should be used in that regard. I don't necessarily need Lashley in the ring on my TV every single week, but would I like him wrestling more often than not? Sure, absolutely. He can still go. There's nothing holding him back. He looks incredibly healthy. And again, he looks 37. So, <laughs> you know, he may be 47, but he sure, sure as shit doesn't look like it. Yeah, there was there was a tweet like a week ago of some old WCW skit where everybody was talking about how Ric Flair was just old and decrepit <laughs> and done. And he's like and he's like 41 at this time, apparently. <laughs> and meanwhile, we've got Bobby Lashley at 47, Carlito at 44. Uh, out there doing a match on SmackDown looking like they're in their early 30s. I mean, credit to those guys. It really, uh, aging has has is definitely different with, with, with different generations. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Bobby Lashley is a, a, a heck of a specimen. I think the tweet refer, referred to him as a mutant. Um, so yeah, he doesn't need to wrestle every time. He is almost freaking 50, although you would never guess that. So shout out to Bobby Lashley. 
Staying with SmackDown, we had uh, LA Knight against Grayson Waller. Now, this was built via social media. Knight actually cut a pretty great promo in an airport. I'm going to play it for you right now. First things first, who? Talk about relevancy. God damn. Look, tell you what, man, I, I don't do uh, social media beef. So if you want to talk to me, I got something for you. Went ahead and talked to Nick Aldis, got this all set up. So tomorrow night on SmackDown, why don't you come on down? We'll do a little talking. Matter of fact, you talk about relevancy. You talk about uh, managing. You talk about running through. Well, I tell you what, if you have enough tingle in your loins to come on down tomorrow, then I will manage to run right through your narrow ass. And that's not an insult. That's just a fact of life. So I tell you what, while you're over here talking about this, that, you're giving all your opinions, the exact place where you can stick every one of those opinions is in your A-town down under. Get off social media, Incel. Yeah. <laughs> he could have ended that promo three different times, and it just kept getting better as he continued doing it. That is what we're talking about with LA Knight. That's the talent. Uh, that is the ability to speak extemporaneously. That is missing so often in professional wrestling these days. He has it, obviously, in spades. He also cut a pre-match promo saying he could say he didn't live up to expectations against Roman Reigns. Fans chanted interrupting him. Yes, you did. And he also agreed with them, saying he took Roman within an inch of losing the title, only to get robbed. Knight said that he wasn't moving to the back of the line and wasn't done with the bloodline until he owns the title. Waller suggested Knight just isn't the guy, so Knight ran him down, basically calling him a pedophile and an incel. More words I never thought I would say on this podcast. Uh, then they perfectly timed an L.A. Knight chant with Knight hitting him in the face with a mic before the match began. Waller had a nice sliding clothesline outside the ring and a stupid between the legs elbow drop inside. Knight avoided a second attempt, then countered the rolling stunner into a suplex. He botched a power slam, but won decisively with the BFT. The match was largely forgettable, but the promo segment kept Knight really strong with the fans. And like I said, I loved that Twitter promo that I just played. Any concerns about Knight losing steam after falling to Reigns, as we said, were going to be completely unfounded. They were. That is a good in my book. I loved that he straight up said, I would be champion if not for Jimmy Uso, essentially. You know, like sometimes after someone loses a title match, they come off and say, oh, you know, I could have done that. I'm going to come back and fight hard. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. He's just like, no, I would have won if it wasn't for Jimmy Uso. <laughs> like, that's what we need. That's how you keep your credibility up by just getting to the point and saying, Roman Reigns cheated to win. Otherwise, I'd be here as your champion. By the way, I love that LA Knight always just says WWE champion. He doesn't yes. go with undisputed universal, blah, blah, blah. I don't, he just, he, None doesn't, of the bullshit. he doesn't care to say all the mumbo jumbo. He just says I'd be your WWE champion. And it feels more real when he says it like that. So I love that. However, you, you, you played the Twitter promo there. He called, he referred to Twitter as X in his promo. He did. Which, I hated I'm that sorry. Too. Yeah, me too. That's a heel move, man. You can't be saying X out loud. That's really weird. So I got to got to take away from that. But but other than that, really good way to just reestablish him, remind us that this guy's a big deal and you can keep supporting him and we're still behind him. So knocked it out of the park. So after the bell, uh, KO somehow got a hold of Pat McAfee's Telestrator, which we haven't seen in months ever since McAfee left. He showed a replay of the double punch a couple times like the one that happened a couple of weeks ago with Theory and Waller. Then after commercial, he literally did it again. He just said, hey, you know what? That was fun. Let's do it a second time. That brought Waller and Theory out to bully him. Theory pushed him. Waller poured water 
on KO's head to test him. Owens stayed calm, but he was pissed that they threw the water bottle at Kevin Patrick, which was pretty much the only good thing they did. Uh, So he ultimately attacked both of them and stunned Waller, which led to the suspension next week that you mentioned earlier. Extremely well done. Very funny. I'm glad they brought that back for KO. He's the perfect person other than McAfee to do the Telestrator. Uh, I really just wanted to say this and give this a bonus good. Also wanted to point out that Cole said uh, when Grayson Water got some water splashed on him or something like that. And Cole says, Grayson is all washed up. <laughs> and, and Kevin Owens bursts out laughing. And he goes, that was a great one, Michael Cole. So like uh, we talked about Kevin Owens on commentary earlier. This match, this spot, especially the, the kind of the reason KO got suspended was that uh, was the highlight for sure. Later backstage, Jimmy Uso called out Knight saying he took offense to him still being after the bloodline and was ready to fight him next week. Roman called him with Jimmy changing his tone and simply saying no yeet because he had said yeet earlier in the promo. It's just really funny that Reigns, like he can't be bothered to show up, but he's watching SmackDown and he calls Jimmy because he said the word yeet. He hates it so much in kayfabe that he has to call him during a promo to tell him to like recant that. No grade here, obviously nothing really happened, but they literally just fought two weeks ago. And Knight also beat Solo Sokoa a month ago. So it feels completely unnecessary that he's still involved with the bloodline and that this match is happening next week. Yeah, I'm um, kind of concerned about LA Knight's spot on Survivor Series. I, I have to imagine they will have him on there, but there's nothing really that lines up. I assume we're not doing a Roman Reigns match again out of the blue. Uh, he, like you said, he's beat Sokoa. He's wrestling Jimmy again. Like he's still very much just doing bloodline stuff, but at what point does it not being Roman Reigns start to kind of pull him down a bit? So, uh, yeah, I guess we'll see what happens, but you know, the show is next week and we don't really know what LA Knight's doing. Well, he's fighting Jimmy Uso, but I don't know what he's doing after that. What's he doing for Survivor Series? Is he not going to be on that show? That's what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. It's very strange. Uh, so the Miz backstage on raw said the Gunther feud is a chance for him to put some respect back on his name. He mocked Gunther with an Arnold Schwarzenegger accent when Ivar walked up calling him a clown. Then Bronson Reed said Gunther was lucky for avoiding him. It got contentious between the heels with Miz ducking out of the picture. Ivar spoke. That's an immediate good, but seriously, uh, it's interesting how Reed always finds a way to inject himself into this stuff. It also felt like a way to protect Ivar in the upcoming match. Gunther later talked shit to Miz, and he snapped, telling him to watch his upcoming match because it'll prove he's worthy and that there's a difference between being a longest reigning champion and the greatest champion. Nikki Cross was also lurking in the background during this segment. So we got Miz against Ivar. There were some damn cool red AR graphics of almost like a ghost pirate ship for Ivar. I guess it's a Viking ship, not a pirate ship. Nevertheless, uh, Miz ate the crossbody into the apron, uh, the sign, and also a cannonball into the corner as Reed set up a chair to sit ringside. Ivar also hit a double underhook Liger bomb, a roundhouse kick, Valhalla distracted the referee, and a world's strongest slam, an avalanche world's strongest slam. Reed distracted Ivar on the top rope, trying a moonsault. So Miz powerbombed him off of it, stacked him, and got leverage with his feet all the way on the top rope for the win. Bronson then squashed Ivar after the bell and hit Tsunami to end it. This was good across the board from the backstage segments to the show-long storytelling to the Miz-Gunther confrontation to the match itself to the booking of the finish. It protected Ivar, created a new feud, gave Miz a quality win. Not sure there's much else I need to say. 
I enjoyed all of it. Made complete sense. Helped all three guys. Yep, definite good across the board. I got to start, though. The Gunther Miz backstage, really good. Like, like we haven't really had Gunther face-to-face talking with someone as good on the mic as the Miz and just talking normal. And Gunther, instead of, like, doing his kind of character, he talked like a normal person. And it honestly made him feel more like a villain. Uh, Like, it just, it, it worked. I also... This time for the weekly comment about Gunther's outfit. Loved <laughs> just a plain long sleeve black shirt. I thought it looked great on him. I, I thought that made him look more menacing, almost like a, almost like a, like a Disney movie foreign villain type of guy, like the like the West German bobsledders and cool runnings or something like that. And the way he was talking with Miz, I thought that all worked. I thought that was way better than suit tuxedo whatever the stuff he's done before and then the match uh miz was great and i love miz cheating to win even though he's the face because he's still the miz and it's very much like a lesser version of mjf doing the i'm a scumbag but i'm their scumbag that's basically kind of what miz is doing here uh, and and people are behind it so good across the board let's just be clear mjf has done that extremely well in aew but the miz did that in wwe way before MJF existed. And yes, he's doing it now because mm-hmm. it's MJF's current gimmick, but The Miz has been a babyface who's cheated to win before, and certainly he's been this type of character his entire career. But yes, you're right. MJF is currently doing it. Um, actually, he's not cheating as much as he probably should be, to, to be honest with you, given his character. Uh, but Miz pulling that out here, the way it protected Ivar and doing it, it was excellent. No question about it. Uh, Otis fought Shinsuke Nakamura. Saying he's frustrated and focused, Nakamura continued to speak to someone unknown saying he would take care of any business he faced and remain patient for now. Commentary for the first time pointed out that Shinsuke was being ambiguous in his promo, talking to someone that they couldn't figure out. Otis ate a turnbuckle shot and a head kick, but countered Kinshasa into World's Strongest Slam for a false finish. Shinsuke got double boots up on a Vader bomb, hitting a flying Kinshasa off the ropes and a second Kinshasa to the back of the head, but Otis would not go down. He followed then with a third Kinshasa for the knockout one, two, three. Nakamura shoved Chad Gable after the bell, and obviously that's going to lead to a match next week. This was way hotter than it had any business being. I'll tell you what, Otis has been on a roll recently. That is two extremely strong singles matches in a row for him. And Nakamura's teases, they continue to intrigue. I love the presentation of him, the way they're continuing that. It's going to be interesting to see what that's all about. And when we ultimately learn who he's talking about, if it's going to be worthwhile. But this was a very good segment on Monday night. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Match was great. Just a different style. Like Otis, who can move as a big guy, Shinsuke being a taller guy. Like it was just a fun matchup of styles. And they worked well together. I I, I really like that. And um, yeah, and we'll see what it means moving forward. But this was fun. This was good. Later in the gym, Gable said he would take care of Nakamura next week. The Creed brothers came up suggesting Alpha Academy might need some new training partners. Then New Day came in saying they'd have to be involved in any type of tag team title picture too. Ivy Nile and Maxine Dupree then commiserated about the guys all being silly, arguing with each other. And they began forming their own friendship with Maxine saying Ivy could model. And Nile's like, you mean like a fitness model? Because, you know, the way she looks, she's very muscular. Uh, The singles women possibly forming a partnership. Some solid comedy with Akira Tozawa, the Creeds and the Academy together. Other than New Day saying that they should be in the title picture, 
when they absurdly lost a non-title match last week, which I told you guys should not have happened and would be this exact problem or would create this exact problem. Um, other than that, this was good. I thought it was a very fun backstage segment. This was hilarious. Like legit, like Tazawa again, like not it was two weeks in a row or two out of three weeks, like just his dancing, like the way he did the W W E war, like he nailed his impression of mm-hmm. Xavier Woods doing that. And the way he's just doing the dance and everybody's selling it, like legitimately really, really funny stuff. And yeah, I like the idea of Maxine and Ivy Niles. It's kind of I'm not understanding what all the guys are doing. This was just a really fun segment. It's like these backstage funny things like this that just keep the characters in your mind and you associate, you know, fun and entertainment when you see them. So uh, I legitimately just laughed very hard at that whole thing. So props again to Zawa's killing it. I did have one nitpick on this segment and most people may not care, but it bothered me. So in all the prior instances where they've done this and Tazawa's done the dancing and Xavier Woods has come in and said, oh, Tazawa, that's nasty. And certainly I'm not doing it justice the way I just said it, right? He's been referring to the dancing. But on Monday, they all reacted to Tazawa almost like he had farted or something. And like you could see them smelling. Yeah. And, and then he said that's nasty that he farted, which is, I mean, that's like Vince McMahon humor. You don't need... Yeah. That was weird. You don't need him farting or pooping himself or something like that for Xavier Woods to say it's nasty. The dancing is what's nasty. That's why it's funny. Saying it that's nasty because he farted is like, I mean, it's beyond sophomore. It's 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 childish. It's stupid. Yeah. So I don't know, I don't know why they divulged into that. Not divulged. What's the word I'm looking for? Devolved. I don't know why they devolved into that when. It was working perfectly fine as it was. Hopefully it's a one-time thing. They get away from it. I know it's a nitpick. I know you guys are like, you're rolling your eyes. Silver King, who really cares? I care because it was really funny before and it was very childish there. That's why. I I I wondered if they just misinterpreted if people other like if other people started acting as if it was a fart and that wasn't meant to be the interpretation. I don't know. You're right. I did notice that it was kind of weird. Also, man, they are really selling, trying to sell the hell out of those NFL championship belts. They're so ugly. I think are just, I don't, I wonder if they're, I wonder, I'm curious how they're selling. I just, I can't, I can imagine some like crazy fans buying them, but uh, they're doing them every week. And look, it's football season. It's NFL. This is the time to sell it. But uh, I wouldn't be getting one of those. It almost makes me think that they commissioned however many, and they're not selling them. So they're heavily pushing them on TV because they got to get rid of the inventory. Now, I don't think that's the case because all it is is different color straps and different logos. You can easily just create them, not necessarily per order, but in smaller quantities. But that is my belief because they are ugly as sin. We said it the second that they came out that even if I was the type of person who would buy one of those, I wouldn't buy that one because they're that's how ugly they are. Um, but yeah, they're shoving them in our face like on every single show. And I get it. Sell your shit. Like it's, it's your company. It's your uh, business. You got to sell merch. But they are ugly as sin. And yeah, that's pretty much all I wanted to say. All right. Uh, Tommaso Ciampa fought Ludwig Kaiser. The referee ejected Giovanni Vinci after he pulled Ciampa's leg, leading to a discus lariat early. Kaiser dominated throughout. He had a rolling Death Valley driver. I haven't seen that in WWE since I think Velveteen Dream. There were a ton of counters. Champa hit a ripcord forearm and caught Kaiser flying with a pump knee, only for Vinci to return, booting Johnny Gargato's head in a blindside, and then Kaiser completely folded Champa in half 
for the win. Later backstage, Gunther praised Imperium. Kaiser took all the credit, but Gunther actually turned his back to Kaiser and instead praised Vinci for getting himself ejected and returning, which no one would have expected. He said the victory was 100% on Geo, which obviously made Kaiser mad. So the referee for this match was the same dude as last week with a really rough count in the number one contendership. He was the one counting the fall, despite the fact that he ejected Vinci from ringside and he came back. I understand that Gunther put it over, but what purpose is the ejection if there's no punishment when the party returns? That should have been an immediate disqualification at a minimum. I'm super mixed here because the match was strong. It was well-wrestled. It got a nice reception from the crowd. Champa got legitimate cheers throughout, and the backstage Imperium segment was really solid, but the finish was so immensely dumb. So I'm going to grade this frustratingly good. Yeah, like good, but you're right. We've made this point many times on the podcast. I want to say around WrestleMania this year, which was if you are ejected and then you come back, there should be harsh punishments for you. You know, we, we've had we just had Kevin Owens suspended for fighting somebody on commentary. You know, we've we've had kayfabe money thrown around since all this came around. There was the big fines that mm-hmm. he delivered a couple of weeks ago. So, like, there has to be some sort of penalty for Vinci for that. Um, maybe they address it next week. I don't know. But it would have been nice to have kind of a follow up and acknowledgement of that, because, yes, it is really weird that we're taking so seriously these rules of a fake sport. But like the rules are what kind of hold the whole thing together. And it's better to have that clear than not. That said, like you said, match was good. Crowd got into it. I did enjoy Imperium backstage. Um, another one of those things where it's like, uh oh, are they going to break up? And then you realize, no, they're just kind of working some stuff out. Uh, so yes, light, good. By the way, they did the Imperium backstage segment. You have Pierce walk over at the start of that segment before the guys start talking. Vinci, very cute out there, which you just did. You're fined $50,000 or you're suspended for next week. Yep. You say that one line, you keep the rest of the segment exactly the same. And I don't have this issue. It's as simple as that it really is. So there you go. Agree. Real quick. You guys know I'm a fan of Champa and Gargano and DIY, but Oh, really? I, I, I wasn't <laughs> sure about that. <laughs> but they right now, they're just not over. They're ice cold as a team. And yep. it's not completely their fault because right now to fans, they're just a couple generic guys who can wrestle well. The Champa character, the build during that Gunther feud, that's been squandered. Gargano, don't forget, he had momentum coming out of Elimination Chamber in February. But now it's been nine months since then And he's been off of TV for a lot of that time due to injury. Imperium, the heels, have more of a character arc than they do as babyfaces. Just winning this feud, potentially, that's not going to accomplish anything. DIY badly needs character and storyline work. They need backstage segments. Maybe they need segments outside of the arena. You know, some of those things that you do at a gym or at a ice cream parlor or, you know, whatever the case might be. If you want to reestablish the way with... Indy Hartwell and Candice LeRae both losing recently. Maybe you have DIY lose this feud to Imperium and they all kind of group together and build each other up. But you got to do something with these guys because like Triple H, he's doing a great job with creative and we poke holes here and there. And DIY was massively over in NXT. Champa and Gargano were massively over in NXT. But Johnny took an entire year off before coming back to WWE. Champa got injured and took time off after he made his main roster debut with The Miz. And 
It's just not clicking the same as it would have if these guys were brought up together three years ago. You got to reestablish that. Yeah. And they're just not doing it. And it's frustrating me. You Also, like, it's been like five years since DIY's height. Like, mm-hmm. you got to evolve and just be new things and do new things and have evolve as characters. And that's going to be a theme, by the way, for the rest of this podcast is, uh, okay, you're a good wrestler or whatever, but like, what is your character? This isn't AEW where you just say, oh, name versus name, the crowd's going to be into it. That's just not how it works in WWE. And that's on WWE to give us more character. Now, a week or two ago, they gave us the long DIY vignette, mm-hmm. which was good, which is a step in the right direction. But again, it's like, if your story is just like, Hey, we used to be really popular and doing great stuff three to five years ago and we're back. <laughs> like that's that's a start, but it's gotta be more. You gotta do yeah, you gotta do something to get into it. It's more than just wrestling. But all they've really done is that video package. And if you missed that on Raw, then all you're seeing is two white meat baby faces, two diminutive guys comparative to, you know, people like Drew McIntyre and Cody Rhodes and, and the bigger talent, the larger, taller, stronger talent on the roster, who can go in the ring and are pretty exciting in that regard. But they're not so exciting in the ring, like doing flippy shit, just as an example. Like they're not two ricochets, let's say, in the ring where you're immediately gonna be drawn into their wrestling. They're accomplished technical wrestlers to a large degree. So what you need to do is create characters around them. And they did that immensely well in NXT with both of them individually and also together when they were DIY. And again, whether it's the way, whether it's coming up with something else, there have to be reasons for fans to care about them as individuals and as friends. And right now, they don't have any reasons to care about them. And you're seeing that transpire with the reactions they're getting in the ring. A great example is Alpha Academy. You could take Otis and you could take Gable, you can put them together, put them in matches, and people really wouldn't give much of a shit. But they spent so much time building up the formation of Alpha Academy with Gable recruiting Otis, then becoming friends. They had a heel arc. They transitioned into a babyface arc, and now they're one of the most popular teams in the entire company. That's similarly what they need to do with DIY. It's a little bit frustrating. There's a lot going on right now. I get it. But if you're going to feature them on TV this frequently, then you need to spend more time with them backstage. Yep. Just you got you to gotta evolve as, as characters and also just have characters, which right. several people coming up we're going to talk about do not have. There you go. So Indy Hartwell fought Zia Lee. Indy hit a nice spine buster only to take a cheap shot to the throat and then a spinning heel kick that led to her collapsing and the referee stopping the match after two minutes. This was not the same roundhouse kick, but commentary pointed that out. And basically the whole purpose is to show that Zaya can do some of these kicks that for everyone else are regular, but for her, they're devastating. So Becky Lynch immediately entered wanting to fight. Zaya escaped manhandle slam and dipped out of the ring with Becky furious saying they would fight next week on Raw. So just like two weeks ago with Candice LeRae, I generally like the concept of the booking to sell the danger of the kick and put over Zaya as this lethal type of wrestler. But to not let the women go and have a match before doing that, it's a massive eye roll and it also lessens the impact of it. If you do that two minutes into a match, everyone's like, oh, okay, the thing's over. But if they were having a six minute match where it was really intense and exciting, and then Zaya delivered that, and it just suddenly ended, that's where you get a crowd reaction. So they didn't do themselves any favors. Lynch coming out saved this from being graded lower, because I was gonna grade it lower, but this was bad. Yep, it was bad, because there's, first off, there's no characters to any of these people, and there's no crowd reaction to any of them because of that. Um, 
Becky Lynch, people know Becky Lynch. She's exciting. Like she talks. Like there, there's that that completely saves the segment, like you said. The the Zai Lee thing, we talked about this, it was last week, which was like the kick, like if the kick is gonna be the move, it should be it should be a 10 count. That is more, I th- I think, Agreed. impactful than referee stoppages. Like we had a long discussion about this and it, it's it's more impactful because it's within wrestling. If it if the referee can just stop a stop a, a match because somebody gets knocked out, like how does that even work? You're you're knocked out for three seconds for a pin, you know? Like that's again, it comes back to like the purpose and the rules of professional wrestling. I, I don't quite usually referee stoppages, it's like if it's an accident, you know, you play into breaking kayfabe or something like that. They're not doing that here. And so, you know, Zia Lee, they've they've put a lot into her here with graphics and entrance and all that kind of stuff. But like, we still don't really, there's there's no connection yet. And and Becky is being used to try to elevate a ton of people right now. And she's doing the best she can. But at some point, you know, it's gotta be more than 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 that. And it's gonna take, again, it's going to take a few weeks, maybe a couple months of seeing people consistently before people finally form an opinion about them. But people don't have an opinion on Zylee or Indy Hartwell or some of the other people. And so it's just kind of like, all right, this just this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Becky Lynch is not cool. We love Becky. We love Becky. And I don't know if that's helping or hurting. It'll take some time to see. But this was this was boring. This was this was a bad. This was probably the latest in the history of this podcast in terms of like the WWE episode that we've ever spoken about Becky Lynch. You know, usually she's at the top of the good, the bad and the ugly, or she's in the main event, not the third to last segment here in the good, the bad or the ugly. So that's interesting as well. Uh, Dragon Lee fought Cedric Alexander. This was a direct rematch from two weeks ago with no reason whatsoever provided. And it started during a commercial. Dragon flipped over the ropes for Huracarana and hit a Topicon Hero plus a Liger Bomb. He also hit a rebound German suplex, but ate a Spanish fly coming back in a great spot. Alexander caught him running for a Mishinoku driver. Dragon countered lumbar check and hit a pump knee plus Destino for the win. They got the crowd going after a really slow start to the show, and they even received a standing ovation for their match. For that reason alone, this gets a good. 3.75 stars B+. It was so fun that Kevin Owens, he was on commentary, he was literally laughing at some of the spots because he couldn't believe how great they were. Alexander was fantastic here, but doing the rematch for rematch sake is immensely frustrating. WWE has not done that in a long time. At least do an angle backstage with Cedric demanding another go at Dragon from Nick Aldis or something like that. I gotta get my win back. I know I can beat him. If you just do that, there's a reason for the match happening. Instead, they did nothing. But the quality of the in-ring work was immensely high. And like I said, it was a good, it was entertaining. Yeah, again, it comes down to having character and character motivations versus just doing cool wrestling. Like, again, this you put this in AEW, it's, you know, incredible. And the match was great, and they did get the crowd behind it, like you said. So that was a positive, but I can't believe they didn't put anything more into it. And it just, I still don't know what these guys are doing or, or why. And I'm surprised that I don't. Because when this started, when I was like, we're doing Cedric versus Dragon Lee again? Like, Right. Okay. I was exactly. kind of like checked out for like the first half of it. I just wasn't really paying attention. And then it kind of, you know, gets better and better. And you're like, oh man, that was a great match. That was a great match. So it's a good, but still some su- surprising that I didn't put more into it, especially like, again, I said two weeks ago, 
Nothing shows that Triple H has full control of creative than the <laughs> fact that Dragon Lee and Cedric Alexander had a match on SmackDown. Yeah. Like just in the first place. And now they're doing a rematch for rematch sake. Um, you know, trying to give you different things on the show. That's good. But just kind of give us a little bit more reason behind it. This played into, though, again, this match was fun, but it played into why I found SmackDown boring because it was four storylines and then this one match and it was a rematch. And it was just like, okay, and like there should have been a storyline coming out of it or going into it. Many different things they could have done. I'm also frustrated that Cedric Alexander is being used to enhance Dragon Lee. I mean, I'm glad he's being used. But then you have Ashanti, the Adonis and B-Fab working potentially with Bobby Lashley and the Street Profits. That's where Cedric should be at least at a minimum. He's that talented. He's that good. Yeah. Put him, throw him with them. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens. But I just hope that Cedric remains a consistent person who's being used on TV. Cameron Grimes, you know, I want him getting involved as well. But these are all people, Dragon Lee, Cedric Alexander, Cameron Grimes. They might be in the low card right now, but you got to develop characters and storylines for them. That's the entire point of getting someone over. It's the entire way you get someone over. They haven't successfully done that yet. Uh, Tegan Knox fought Piper Niven on Raw. Tegan got a pretty cool promo package, I will say, coming off like a yeah. big time baby face, fighting back from injury and adversity. And she just wants to be a fan favorite. I wish they did this before the Becky match when she was really featured on TV. Natalia entered with her and commentary spent a lot of time talking about Tegan during the match, which told you the result you were going to get. She started hot, but got cut down by Piper with a running senton and a shoulder breaker. Knox rolled through and hit the shiniest wizard, which commentary completely missed making the call on. Piper kicked out and they didn't sell the kick out as impressive. Chelsea Green distracted and Natalia got bounced off the apron. That allowed Tegan to avoid a falling crossbody and hit the shiniest wizard as this time it was called. But Piper got her foot on the bottom rope. Knox then failed on a sunset flip, but she avoided a seated splash from Piper catching her in a crucifix pinning combination for the win in about five and a half minutes. So this is what I always talk about as being the minimum for women's matches in WWE. Those three extra minutes make all the difference when it comes to getting someone over. I am not saying that Knox was made from the match. I'm not saying that suddenly she's super over with the crowd, but she did start to get a response. And at least you know now she's formidable and someone to watch and not someone who just lucked into a win. She earned it. The entire point of this segment was try to get her over. They definitely made a dent. This gets a good as a segment grade, but the match was lackluster. I've said it before, Tegan's moves, she's just so slow these days. It's not her fault. There was just a lack of chemistry between them overall, but this was a huge step in the right direction for her and for the women's division. Yes, good promo. I was worried it was going to be like the Candice LeRae one where it's like I worked all the way back here and then immediately got kicked in the head by Siley <laughs> lost. Um, but it, it was a good vignette to just give us a reason to know who she is. Doesn't mean we're fully behind her, but you know who she is. Because again, like with DIY, your, your character can't be, hey, a, a number of years ago, people really liked me. But it's a step forward. The match was okay. I mostly kind of didn't love Piper Niven taking the pin here mm. because the women's tag team champions, like the whole kind of gimmick I thought was, Chelsea takes all the pins. Mm -hmm. Piper does all the work and gets the win. And I loved that idea, but they've not really done much for shoot a month now. And now Piper Niven's taking a pin to, to Tegan Knox. So like, eh, don't love that for the women's tag team and the, and, and, and Piper in general, but 
They explained why they did this match because of the Battle Royal. That's good. They set it up. Mm-hmm. They told us who Tegan is, and she won. Like, that's good. That it, I don't know if it'll totally going to work. We'll see what the reaction is next week. But that's that's how you start to build somebody. That's what they're not doing with Cedric Alexander, Dragon Lee, Indy Hartwell, Zia Lee, etc. So uh, that at least was a positive. I'm giving it a, just barely a light good because you could see everything they were trying to do. Um, but I don't love Piper taking the pin. See, I'm okay with Piper taking a pin because she got caught in a pinning combination, the crucifix, as opposed to like eating a finisher and losing. That's what happens to Chelsea. Chelsea just gets beat clean. Piper, in this case, got beat, you know, in somewhat of a happenstance. Also, it gives a reason to create the tag team title match between these four, which we're surely going to get, and the heels are going to win anyway. So they're going to come out on top strong at the end. So therefore, that part of it didn't bother me. That is it from SmackDown and Raw this week, which leads us to our final segment on today's show. It is the last word. So DJ, take the need to win, just drop it on the record. What? We gon' have a poppin' in a second. That's why we always save the best cut last to make the scratch and mix for it like fresh cut grass. Now, as I mentioned last week, we now have a repository of some really great questions we are going to get to over the ensuing weeks. However, Brett Charles Malam at Brett underscore Malam asked a very topical question this week based on a piece of news that had come out, I believe, last Friday. Thought it was a great opportunity for us to discuss it rather than just riffing on it at the start of the show. So he asked, I'm sure you've heard all the talk about potentially doing sponsor logos on the ring mat. This was reported by the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. He said, Silver King, as you are someone who has typically found sponsor infusion into the product to be distracting to the matches, Would you be against that? So this is a really good question. And obviously, of course, it's a question for both of us. My issue with sponsor infusion into the matches is not the fact that matches have sponsors. It's the way those sponsors are displayed. So lighting up those huge LED um, ring barricades with brightly colored backgrounds, red, purple, yellow, some of those, the visual distraction of that is what annoys me. A flat logo on a mat, even if colorful, is not the end of the world as far as I'm concerned. In fact, I have long believed that WWE, I've never really said this, but I cannot understand for a company that is so much about branding, how they have not had the WWE logo like in just a little darker color in the middle of the ring mat. I've just never understood why it hasn't been there. Now, would I want a big cinnamon toast crunch or Mike's hard lemonade logo smack dab in the middle of the mat. No, I would prefer that not be the case. But as you've seen in boxing and some other, you know, uh, types of combat sports, they can sometimes do the logo like in each corner of the mat. I'd be okay with that if they had two or four different logos there. Look, we have them on NBA jerseys now. There's advertising all over professional sports. I wouldn't be surprised if sooner than later it comes to college sports as well. Uh, but as of right now, if they were to do something with the mat, I'm not against it, but it completely depends on the visual. If they put like a big purple logo or they shine a logo fake on the mat and it's distracting, I'll have a problem with it. If they don't and it's relatively hidden, but enough, obvious enough for the viewer to see, then that's totally fine with me. You're right that I can't believe WWE has never done this before. And when they merged with UFC, this seemed like a slam dunk. Yeah, they're going to put some advertising, some logos on the map because you see it in boxing, you see it in UFC, you see it in AW and and everything. Mm -hmm. But 
I really hope they don't. And I've honestly, one of the things I've just really respected about WWE's presentation is that they haven't done that. They have like, as Gunther likes to say, the mat is sacred <laughs> and they've kept it. They've kept it completely clean. And I respect the hell out of them for doing that because it would have been so easy to throw and they throw advertisements everywhere, like you said, but they don't put them on the mat. And I, and I always really liked that. And I hope they don't. I assume they will. It makes all the sense in the world to mm -hmm. do it. But I like when I think back, when I got into wrestling in the Attitude Era, one thing that always jumped out with the re one of the reasons I became a WWE fan instead of a WCW fan back in the day was because WWE just looked so much more respectable and professional because you would see the clear big Titan Tron up at the top of the ramp and you'd see a clean mat. You'd go over to WCW with a giant Monday Nitro logo on the mat or Halloween Havoc or something like that. And it, it just, it looked cheap. And so WWE's always kept a really professional look. Mm -hmm. And so I hope they don't put it on there. I, I think it would make them look like everybody else if they do. Um, but I, again, new ownership, it makes sense to do it for the sake of money. They probably will. But I've just really liked that WWE forever hasn't done that. Let me ask you another question coming off of this. Ring ropes. So WWE uses basically, in almost all cases on Raw and SmackDown, white ring ropes. They used to use red for Raw and blue for SmackDown. What do you think of that change? And do you believe they should change it back? There are a lot of people online who badly want the red and blue ring ropes back. I want the red and blue for SmackDown and Raw. But more importantly, I want black for pay-per-views. I, I think pay-per-view only should get black ropes. It feels like a bigger deal. And they used to do that for a while. Um, it, it, it differentiates it enough without being distracting. It signifies what you're watching. White is very neutral. White, you, it's easy. You know, you can use it in any setting. It's fine. I don't hate the white. I just always thought the red and blue helped, but not to the extent that black did. Black on pay-per-views signified this is a big match. This is a big show. Interesting. And so I've always been a fan of that. It's interesting you say that. So I very much like the white now. And primarily the reason I like it is I've always found not in every segment, but relatively frequently, especially on SmackDown, the blue ropes are like distracting and the red occasionally would get distracting as well. Plus, as we just mentioned, there is so much color on these broadcasts between the crowd getting lit up in red for Raw and blue for SmackDown. The ring posts are now LED. Yeah. The barricade is now LED. The yeah. ring apron is LED. There's AR graphics. There's so many freaking things that having white ropes and a neutral colored ring mat for me, I'm totally fine with it. If they were going yeah, to do point. colored ropes, I would actually be kind of interested in doing like a red middle rope on Raw or a blue middle rope on SmackDown. So it's a little bit different and you're able to tell the ropes apart from each other. Or if you're gonna do red and blue for a Raw on SmackDown, then pay-per-views I think should be red, white, and blue. White as neutral, red for Raw, blue for SmackDown. But I got to agree with you. I loved when they did the black ropes for pay-per-views back in the day. And they eventually at one point changed that and they started doing white ropes for pay-per-views and then red and blue uh, for Raw and SmackDown mm -hmm. respectively. So I really, what I would do to make a, like a best of both worlds situation is I would keep white on both shows and I would do black on the premium live events. But 
I personally biggest, yeah. would not do red and blue permanently. I wouldn't. Yeah, no, that's a good point. The, the point about the, the the post, the LED, like you can you can generally tell what show you're watching without the ropes. That's a good <laughs> Very point. Very I think I agree with you on that. <laughs> yeah. My my biggest issue with WWE presentation is that the pay-per-views, if they're not in a stadium, although half of them are in stadiums now, right. uh, doesn't feel special. Obviously, it's been like a decade. We're not going back to the every show gets its own unique setup. Mm -hmm. But I think that combined with black ropes made things feel differently. When you've got a fast lane or uh, or something else that just feels like a special episode of Raw or SmackDown, but there's nothing to signify it, mm -hmm. that I think takes down the feeling of a show. That's why I would do something like black ropes, at least something to signify uh, when you're not in a stadium, that this is different than a regular episode of Raw or SmackDown. Yeah, I'm frustrated that Raw and SmackDown don't have different sets. I mean, that for me on a weekly basis, being able to tell the two shows apart, that is something I would love more than anything. But yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. Like Fastlane was the Raw set with two race cars just parked right in front of it. It's like, you know, you can make it a little bit different. You don't have to go crazy, but just some elements. Um, I always think back to tables, ladders, and chairs. It was like, the easiest setup ever, right? It was the regular Raw or SmackDown set. I forget which one they, they used back in the day, but they just decided to hang strings of ladders and strings of uh, chairs and strings of tables from the, from the ceiling. And it had a really cool aesthetic. They would walk through it. They'd knock them back and forth. Like it was really nice. Um, so I agree with you though. Like going back to unique sets obviously would be great. But as you mentioned, when it comes to premium live events, there are very few these days that are still using the TV set. It's like Fastlane is the perfect example of one that does that because number one, so many shows are stadium shows, which means they're either using a yeah. huge set like WrestleMania, Crown Jewel, SummerSlam, one of those, or they're using like the equivalent of the baseball set where it's just like a small screen and a really long entrance ramp so they can pack as many people as possible into the venue. I would say, I mean, I'd have to really go back and look, but if WWE did, you know, 11 premium live events this year, I would guess there's only two or three that use the raw set. But then if you're getting into that, that tells you that's a B-level premium live event. That's even more reason to not do it. All right. Well, there was our aesthetic conversation here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast to wrap up this show. We have a ton coming on this podcast over the next two weeks. In terms of wrapping up this week on Thursday, We'll be back not only with our NXT episode, but our AEW Full Gear Ultimate Preview on Saturday. As soon as that show goes off the air, we will have an AEW Full Gear Instant Analysis episode. And then next week in this exact spot, your WWE Survivor Series War Games Ultimate Preview in this spot on Tuesday. And then, of course, next Saturday, Rivalry Week for College Football, also rivalry week for WWE. We will have Survivor Series War Games instant analysis. And yes, I will get the Adam Pierce clip on the show next week. We'll have some variety for those drops as we preview Survivor Series War Games. But that is it for this week's edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. On the way out, first, a reminder that this show is all about Defy. So please leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review on Apple. We will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Please also remember... 
I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. You get the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, bonus audio four times a week, and exclusive news as well. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting overhead. Thanks once again to Vintage Chris Benini for joining your boy, the Silver King, Adam Silverstein. Thanks to all of you for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. At this point, it is time for us to sign off and for me to leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.